following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Good morning. My name is Toby Hebner, and uh, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Some of you may know my dad, Charlie Hebner. He is uh, on the elder board here. And I was just really excited when uh, when he and Steve approached me and said, hey, we'd like for you to come and preach at, at Salt Lake EV Free. Uh, and I was expressing to him, I was expressing to my dad, I said, man, I'm very excited that Steve asked me to preach, and I hope to do the request justice. And my dad said, well... You're just going to need to let go of trying to preach like Steve does. (laughs) So two things came to mind at that point. Yeah, ouch. Dad. Um, One is that uh, I love the honest and open relationship I have with my with my father. And um, and uh, I think he's a great leader. And um, I just wanted to publicly affirm him in front of the people that he helps lead. Uh, I love my relationship with him. And it's honest and it's great. The second thing is that you guys have uh, an amazing gifted speaker here in Steve. And I'm sure you guys already recognize that. I'm I'm not stating anything new. But it really is a pleasure to be able to fill the pulpit for him um, because he is is truly gifted. And so um, they're not here to hear my buttering up to them, but you guys can pass it along to them. No, I really do just want to publicly affirm the leaders that you guys have at this church. The text we're going to be speaking from, or that I'm going to be speaking from this morning, is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Uh, turn with me there. But before we read that, I'm going to provide some introduction to the text. You may have heard the statement made of saintly people. They've become so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. The Corinthian church had fallen into becoming so earthly minded that it was no heavenly good. Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church came amidst rampant immaturity within the church and amidst Hellenizing threats from outside the church. And by Hellenizing threats, I mean the Greek culture at large was pushing the idea that the physical world had no value. And so the response for those in Corinth should be to completely shun the physical world, uh, which is asceticism, or to completely indulge in it, which is hedonism. So while the Corinthian church was dealing with some very visceral physical challenges like sexual immorality, lawsuits among unbelievers, um, and even the types of food that should be eaten, they were also being influenced by the idea that the physical and spiritual worlds were completely separate things. Our passage today will address this, and it will challenge the Hellenistic idea by promoting that the physical and spiritual realities are not separate, but they're intimately associated. And then in 2 Corinthians, we see uh, increasing maturity within the Corinthian church, but we also see increasing Judaizing threats. Um, Judaizers were Jewish Christians who insisted upon the retention of the Jewish law in the church, 
uh, not only for converted Jews, but also for converted Gentiles. Their overt focus on outward appearances, such as circumcision for all converts, facilitated the questioning of Paul's authority. Paul's physical weakness uh, had created doubts concerning his apostolic role. Uh, We see this in 2 Corinthians 10.10. Judaizers were saying, His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. As well, Paul is conscious of being judged adversely in outward appearance, outward appearance as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.12. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. The Judaizers were causing some question to Paul's authority because of his physical circumstances, because of his outward appearance, and because of his hardships. So in 2 Corinthians 4, we start to see his defense. It's, it's a sort of self-commendation. Um, and his defense addresses what the Corinthian believers were to do about the physical and spiritual realities that they faced daily. And the passage also instructs us today on the following question. Are our physical circumstances a barrier to true life, or can they be seen as a gift? So read with me, if you will, from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pray with me. Lord, um, thank you for choosing to use me in spite of me. And, um, and at the same time, I trust that you have chosen me on this occasion to speak truth. And so I pray that you will set me aside and that you will speak truth to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, our problem is right there in verse 16. The problem is is that we do lose heart. What Paul is asking the Corinthians and us to do, or not to do in verse 16, is the very thing that we are doing. Uh, I've identified here three reasons that we lose heart, as it states in verse 16. We lose heart when we focus on the outer self that is wasting away and neglect the inner self, the part that's actually being renewed thanks to the redemption that Christ provides. So there is serious potential in the Corinthian church to lose heart because the Judaizers were trying to avert their focus to external appearances. You need to be circumcised rather than the internal realities that you are redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross. And in the same way, we're adversely influenced by what Dallas Willard calls the seeming unreality of the spiritual life or the overwhelming presence of the visible world. It's so easy to completely lose sight of the spiritual world that actually informs 
our physical circumstances. Next, we lose heart because we believe suffering is the antithesis of true life. And then we become overwhelmed by the suffering, weakness, decay, and brokenness that appear to be destroying the world around us. Often we'll turn to our own resources to alleviate suffering as quickly as and as efficiently as possible. Because suffering is always seen as a barrier to life. And if suffering is not preparing us for anything or achieving anything, one question I have is, then why not have a sweeping reform concerning euthanasia? Yet if what, is, what Paul is saying is true, that affliction is preparing something else for us, that's something to take to heart. And third, we lose heart because our external circumstances quickly rise or give rise to internal sin. Sin issues that we can't seem to get away from. We begin to rely on ourselves, which often leads to avoidance of day-to-day realities, of our day-to-day circumstances, and can lead to even more hopelessness. These points were brought to life in my personal experience recently as I struggled with unemployment. Um, I worked up at Salt Lake Theological Seminary, and uh, when the economy turned, uh, that organization uh, went into a dormant state. And um, in my mind, arrogantly and ignorantly, I thought, oh, I'll be able to find a job, um, you know, after this. But I began to lose heart when I was rejected by one local ministry. And then I began to lose heart even more when I found out that as I was pursuing other ministries, is that God was giving me a red light on on full-time career ministry. Then I became overwhelmed by the fact that I didn't have any experience in any other field. I was a youth pastor and I went to seminary. Okay, philosophy of religion, you know. A lot of people don't see that on the resume and say, there we go. You know, I was a recreation management major in, in my bachelor's degree, so... Um, so I was worried about my lack of experience. I began to lose heart, and I began to lose heart that I was going to be able to lock down a salary that honestly provided for our current standard of living. After five months of frustrated searching, I became overwhelmed by the sheer lack of income, and I took a job decontaminating hospital equipment up at the university hospital. Next, I began to lose heart as I compared my life situation with that of my friends. My pride and sense of entitlement began to creep in because my friends, titles like CFO and VP of Texas Capital Bank and head coach of a Division II college basketball program, at least working in career ministry would have saved us a little bit. You know, I could have said, oh, well, you know, at least I'm working in ministry, right? The reality was I was 32 and I was cleaning crap off of commodes. My external circumstances began to reveal some very ugly issues in my life. So to reiterate, verse 16, Paul is saying, do not lose heart. And I think the reasons why we do lose heart is first because we focus on the outer self that's wasting away and we don't focus on the inner self that's being renewed by the redemptive work of Christ. Second, we lose heart because we believe suffering is the antithesis 
to true life. And thirdly, we lose heart because our external circumstances eventually give way to internal sin problems that we have. So how do we avoid losing heart? How can we avoid being overwhelmed by our circumstances? What needs to change in order for us to embrace our circumstances and afflictions as opportunities for instead of barriers to true life? I offer this to you this morning. Through the lens of the redemptive work of Christ, we must change our understanding on how our circumstances, and particularly suffering and afflictions, relate to true life. Before I dive in, I'd like to just comment briefly on what I believe Paul is not saying in this passage. I don't think Paul is advocating some sort of escapism from problems um, or circumstances. Then I phrases in verse 18, we fix our eyes on the unseen. And it means that we're trying to maintain eternal perspective in our circumstances. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we disregard them. Rather, it's seeking power in the midst of them and in the midst of other distractions as well. I mean, in my idea, in my mind, the fixing our eyes on something means that there are other things in our field of vision. Two, Paul never diminishes the hurt and pain our afflictions cause. He never diminishes that. The challenge is to converse with, converse with God about what he is achieving through them. And Paul is not saying that the difficult circumstances should be sought out either. Only that they can be endured by God's power and for his glory. So let's dig into the main point this morning. The Christian life means to bear both the dying and life of Christ. To bear both what is wasting away and what is being renewed. And to understand how intimately associated these two things are. A few verses back in 2 Corinthians 4, we read in 4, 10 through 11, Paul says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Again, what is wasting away and what's being renewed are intimately related. Neither the physical nor the spiritual should be disregarded. There were influences in Corinth that promoted the abandonment of one over the other. And we, as, we must be aware of those influences today as well. I don't advocate comparing afflictions with other people. However, I want to admit to you that the suffering I've experienced in my life pales in comparison to what some of you have gone through um, and what some of you are going through right now. I can't speak to the betrayal of a spouse. I can't speak to chronic pain. I can't speak to persecution. And I can't, I can't speak to unexpected death of a loved one. But I believe that the life of Christ revealed to us in the Bible supplies us all with a firm foundation on which we can stand in affliction. As well, it paints an intimate relationship between our sufferings and eternal life. Mark 10.45 
For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. God offers the hope of Christ secured on the cross in verse 17 of our passage today, where it says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because of what Christ has done and is continuing to do, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Romans 5. And again in Romans 8, as it was already mentioned this morning. And we know now that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Interestingly, in verse 18 we see a hierarchy at at work within the relationship between the spiritual and the physical, between what is seen and unseen. What is seen is transient, transient. What is unseen is eternal. In other words, the visible world is always at the disposal of the unseen world of God. The intimate relationship between our afflictions and true life is furthered in Paul's choice of words in, in verse 17. When Paul is describing the weight of glory achieved by the suffering of Christ, the Greek word baros is used. Paul's use of the word may be influenced by the fact that weight and glory in Hebrew come from the same root. Weight is an ironic metaphor here since it otherwise is used for the crushing burden of afflictions. Mentioned in 2 Corinthians 1.8 and 2 Corinthians 5.4. But in this case, Paul is looking to be fattened by glory. Glory that transforms. What's more is that we are already, those who are in Christ are already being fattened by glory. Here, now, today. The hope is that despite appearance, human mortality is already being counterbalanced by renewal in a process that will stretch beyond death into eternal glory. Again, the glory is not just a future glory, but is glory that is currently transforming us. So, to reiterate, to bear the dying and the life of Christ means to seek the power of God in both what is wasting away and what is being renewed. God's power can be accessed through his revelation in Scripture. The pages of the Bible, especially 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, uh, in there we read that the visible world is always at the disposable of the unseen world of God. 
However, neither should be discarded or disregarded. Lastly, the weight of glory is already being revealed in us and is transforming us even today. So what? How can we avoid being overwhelmed in our circumstances? How can we access the power of God to see our circumstances become opportunities for instead of barriers to true life? The power to avoid being overwhelmed has been established through the work of the suffering servant, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we are tempted toward being overwhelmed by our circumstances, his life, his death, his resurrection should be the first place we run to for refuge. He was the suffering servant, and we can find refuge in what he accomplished on the cross. And if you've tried anything else in this world for refuge, but you've never sought refuge in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to not wait any longer. Today is a great day to place your trust in the one who has proven himself to be trustworthy. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 reminds us that Christ is the only one who can fully sympathize with our struggles. Which is yet one more reason why we can confidently approach him in our time of need. It will help us to understand that God is not insensitive to our circumstances. He's not insensitive to our problem. He's not unaware of our predicaments. He himself became flesh to transform it. This transformation continues through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has provided points of contact for us for constant interaction with God. And one I'd like to explore with you today is prayer. For the purposes of this morning, I'm not going to be able to cover all aspects of prayer, but I just want to offer prayer as entering into dialogue with God concerning our circumstances. The redemptive work of Christ allows us to enter into this dialogue and allows us to enter into this constant companionship with Christ. We recently had an, an ultrasound that gave us pause. Um, my wife Julie is 24 weeks pregnant now. And our ultrasound technician expressed some concern he had for our baby's heart. This demolished our expectation of walking into the office and, and getting a perfect happy report on how our baby was developing. And I've struggled since then with two responses. The first is to simply become overwhelmed with, a, with anxiety over the situation. The second is to be tempted to explain the situation away. After all, ultrasounds are an imperfect science. Um, the doctor had not heard of this heart condition or this, you know, heart situation before. And many of our friends said, you know what, I don't, I don't, just in our experience, I don't think there's a lot to worry about, even friends who have a pretty good amount of medical experience. But what I've come to grips with is the implication of the ultrasound. It could be very serious and there could be implications for our child and there could be implications for our life. And things may also be fine. There, be, there may be no need for concern. But the point is that God was inviting me into conversation with him. He was saying, let's, let's talk about this. This has been a check for Julie and myself. 
Um, we become very aware of our complete inability to control the situation or make it go away. And what God has done is he's, re- he's reminded us that his love for us and for this baby far surpasses our understanding. It's like God was saying, let's, let's talk about control, Toby. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about sacrifice. Let's talk about parenthood. Let's talk about community. So prayer invites us to introduce our experiences in the physical world into dialogue with God. This is powerful because our experiences so often point to the fact that we are not entirely at home on this earth. Our experiences constantly challenge our expectations of what full life should be. This brings a deep sense of dependence. Not independence, but dependence. The hope here is that our utter dependence, lack of control, and lack of understanding will not promote feelings of being overwhelmed, but will foster an opportunity or will foster us to converse more with God concerning our circumstances, to converse with the God of hope. Prayer offers an opportunity to interrupt life for the sake of life itself, not to escape. And therefore, it provides a point of contact with God that, that gives us a point of direction and a point of reflection concerning our circumstances. It's one, ways, it's one of the ways in which we can fix our eyes on the unseen, on the eternal. So I'm keeping it kind of short and sweet this morning. As I wrap up, I want to share a recent journal entry of mine. This is just a little and probably somewhat trite example. But um, it's amazing how God usually prepares a speaker by making him or her intimately familiar with the message that's about to be given. Here's, a, here's my journal entry. Today, one coworker left for the week for a funeral, which prompted little empathy for me, from me concerning the time that she's been absent recently. Another coworker expressed her extreme frustration with me concerning these absences of her other coworker. Then I received an email that went uh, that we had gone into our overdraft protection account and our rent check had not been deposited yet. This is frustrating because we were still trying to dig out from unemployment. After a few phone calls with entitled clients, I was ready for lunch. I returned to more frustration, but the circumstances became more and more petty. People kept stopping in my office uninvited. Julie made a comment that rubbed me wrong. The Coke machine was out of Coke. When I got home, Julie had used the wrong pan to cook dinner. I wrote this in my journal. Heaven forbid. Josh decided he hated taking a bath and screamed the entire time. It's Monday night, the night Julie and I agreed that I could work on my sermon. On my way to Barnes & Noble, I I drove like a maniac, cutting people off and cursing under my breath. And now I'm supposed to prepare for a sermon. I'm upset that my heart isn't right, and it is especially not ready to prepare a sermon on being overwhelmed by the physical. Or maybe it is. May I embrace my experiences today, repent, 
and offer them back to you. You guys, this little attitude shift that happened at the end, not my doing. Because believe me, I was not in a good place that evening. I offer this entry as an example. Because I believe that shift at the end reveals the power of God and the power of engaging with God through prayer. That dramatic little sentence at the end, little shift. So, in conclusion, losing heart can be a daily battle. Even moment by moment, we lose heart when we focus on the outer self that's wasting away and neglect the inner self, the part that is actually being renewed through the redemptive work of Christ. Second, we lose heart because we believe suffering is the antithesis to true life and has no value. And thus, we don't believe anything can be achieved through it. Thirdly, we lose heart because our external circumstances quickly give rise to internal sin issues. That can, uh, that we never can seem to get away from. I can't underestimate the, the daily nat- nature of this battle. Um, the battle confronts us as we awake, um, as we wake to the duties of being unemployed, as we struggle with loneliness, as we wake up next to a spouse that's hurt us, <clears throat> as we get ready for uh, work in a career that we're completely discontent in, as we're bombarded with the insecurities of parenthood, as we awake to the pain of a lost loved one, as we live paycheck by paycheck, as we struggle against chronic pain, as we deal with past abuse. I hope that through the lens of the redemptive work of Christ, we will change our understanding of how our circumstances, and particularly suffering, relates to true life. I hope we will learn to embrace the dying and the life of Christ. I hope we can see more clearly the intimate relationship between the seen and the unseen. I hope that prayer becomes a daily interruption for life, for the sake of life itself. Life that embraces the present, that's rooted in the past, and that's hopeful in the future glory promised to those who surrender to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. Thank you so much for the grace that you offer, that you lavish on us. Thank you for initiating with us. Thank you for your desire to converse with us. And thank you that you change things, that your glory is transforming things even here and now. I pray that we would fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Understanding that you are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory.
far beyond comparison. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.